Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. Born Michel Dimitri Chaloub, the legendary Egyptian actor Omar Sharif seemed to always have a flair for the exotic. Perhaps it's this insatiable desire that led him as a teenager to drag his school friends to see a fortune teller in the bustling city of Alexandria. Guys, come on. She's just down this way. She's a legend. Trust me, you won't regret it. A young Omar Sharif was foretold he was destined for international stardom. A life filled with passion, freedom, vitality, and extreme good luck. But his fortune wasn't all good. The psychic predicted that his big, fiery lifestyle that went along with his roaring success would be the very thing that would cause him to crash and burn. Of course, it was just a fortune teller, so maybe she sold the same story to lots of teenage boys. And yet, as fantastical as it all sounded, Sharif would indeed ascend as a world-famous actor in the 1960s and 70s, become rich, and have his choice of romantic partners. But also, as predicted, Sharif's luck ran out. The last 30 years of his life were marked by deep gambling debts and violent meltdowns. He was a burnt-out star, disappearing into a lonely existence. Was Sharif simply destined to live out the fortune teller's prediction? Or was his self-destruction a choice made by a man so blinded by living for the moment that he destroyed his future? I was born in 1932 in Alexandria. My family is Syrian and Lebanese. We were Catholics who settled in Egypt long ago. Though Egypt was predominantly Muslim, there's also a sizable population of Roman Catholics, which included the family of Omar Sharif, whom of course then was named Michel Chaloub. My father Joseph was a prosperous timber merchant who dealt in exotic wood. He came from nothing but was smart and worked hard. I remember when I was a little kid, he had finally made enough money to move us out of our small apartment in Alexandria to our very own two-story house in Cairo. My mother, Claire Saada, a real spitfire of a woman, was tall and slender, just a shade over six feet, with brilliant long red hair. It was only natural that she became a beloved socialite when we moved to Cairo. And she loved to gamble. I remember staying up late to sneak around her parties. I tipped her out of bed and crouched down at the end of the hall to get a glimpse of the party. My mother was always the center of attention. I could hear her over the music, greeting guests, raising glasses of champagne. She'd transform our living room into a French casino. The room was always thick with smoke. 
Her parties became so well known that even King Farouk would come over to play a few rounds of cards with her. I watched as all the guests laughed, drank, and gambled the nights away. I dreamed of being one of those men at the party. The good-looking, popular ones, with wads of money, obviously. My mother had lofty aspirations for me. Imagine her disappointment when at ten years old I was still her tubby little mama's boy. She wanted me to get out there and socialize with other boys my age, so she sent me to a prestigious boarding school in Alexandria, where I rubbed elbows with the sons of kings, diplomats, and other high-society kids. I joined the school soccer team, and by the end of our first season, the extra weight around my belly melted away. I started feeling more confident and began taking parts in school plays. By my senior year, I was made head boy of our class, which meant that I was to give the students speech at graduation that year. As with many of us, I came to Victoria College a boy, and I now leave a man. But more than that, it was here that we learned to find our passions. It's here that I found my love of connecting with people through language. English, French, Spanish, Greek, and Italian to me are pure poetry. All of that helped me craft a perfectly indecipherable accent, which will no doubt come in handy for me one day. <laughs> Edward Said, a renowned poet and former classmate of Sharif, described him as the very model of the supercilious head boy. In other words, he was pompous. During those formative years, a young Sharif had also experienced love for the first time. He met her during a trip to France paid for by his wealthy uncle, a man who inspired Sharif's love of poetry and languages. The French countryside is gorgeous, but to my young eyes, there was nothing and no one more beautiful than Yane Lemouille. I met Yane at camp. The day we met, I was in the dining hall when I felt someone looking at me. I scanned the room to find two big hazelnut-colored eyes. Her hair was the color of honey. I was smitten. Yane and Sharif were teenagers when they met, but they managed to keep their summer camp fling going for several years. I was completely infatuated. Lucky for me, the feeling was mutual. After we left camp, we couldn't bear to be away from one another. We'd spend every weekend together in Alexandria, lazing around on the beach all day and hitting up the clubs at night. We stayed that way for years, Yane and I. In the early 1950s, I was 18 years old, madly in love, and ready to start my theatrical career. When he graduated, Sharif made it clear to his parents that he planned on pursuing a career in acting. They did not approve. They wanted him to work with his father for the family timber business. Sharif's relationship with his parents was complicated. They spoiled him, even buying him cars and paying for his nightclub bills. 
But all that freedom and privilege came with strings attached. The one thing they refused to do was support his acting ambitions. When I turned 21, I decided to propose to Yane. My parents had a conniption. The Catholic Church would never approve, since Yane was Protestant. Personally, I didn't believe in the outdated rules my parents lived by, but at the same time, I couldn't imagine life without my family. Or couldn't imagine paying for it? My parents didn't give me an ultimatum exactly, but I knew I couldn't choose Yane and keep my relationship with them. So that was the end of me and Yane, my first love. His struggle to choose between love and personal gain would play out over the course of his life and career. Although Sharif had acquiesced to his parents' expectations of marriage this time around, he still wasn't willing to back down from his career aspirations. He would have to be more creative when it came to convincing his parents to let him pursue acting. They wanted me to be a wealthy businessman. And since my father was funding my lifestyle, I couldn't just walk away. Babo got me a job in the family timber business as a salesman. It was dreadful. He and his associates sitting in a back room, hunched over ledgers and calculators. So, I came up with a way to get myself out of a job. I created a character, someone they couldn't ignore. From that day forward, I would assume the role of the worst businessman ever. Please, please, don't worry. Don't worry, pay us back when you can. Pay us back when you can. I accidentally sold things at a loss. No, 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 trust me, trust me, trust me. You won't find it at this price. You won't find it at this price. Anywhere else. Anywhere else. Anywhere else. The irony was I was actually pretty good at math. I put on this comedy for two whole years. It finally paid off. Babo couldn't afford to keep me on and fired me. Sharif finally got what he wanted and went on to pursue acting. And just in the nick of time. In 1952, Egypt's King Farouk was deposed in a bloodless coup. As Egypt's government reorganized itself, the economic uncertainty caused the family business to plummet. With the monarchy gone, the swanky home gambling parties that Sharif's mother hosted came to a crashing halt. Egypt's elite were on a downward spiral as the poor rose up to demand their rights. Now in his early 20s, Having lost his first love to religious conflicts and then seeing his family's fortunes decimated by political upheaval, Sharif made a vow to himself to never let matters of religion or nationalism come in the way of his romantic and financial prospects again. I'm not interested in politics. People interest me. Their problems interest me. As for religion, I believe in men, not God. His fortune soon turned round when, in 1954, Sharif received a call from his old friend from boarding school, Yusuf Shaheen. He was casting for a film, The Blazing Sun. Yusuf, how are you, old friend? He asked Sharif to do a screen test for the lead role of Ahmed, 
an agricultural engineer who falls in love with his landlord's daughter. Of course I'll do it! Despite having no film experience, Sharif nailed the screen test and landed the role, his first big break. Shaheen had told me they were trying to get the Egyptian starlet, Fatin Hamama, to play opposite me. I nearly fell out of my chair. Fatin Hamama was a beloved Egyptian star, so the film's producers were skeptical that such a big-name actress would agree to play opposite a rookie like Sharif. And then there was the issue of the kiss. The screenplay called for Ahmed and Amal, the main characters, to kiss on screen, which back then was considered too racy in Egypt. So? What did she say? <laughs> That's fantastic! She agreed to both! <laughs> I was going to be playing opposite one of Egypt's most celebrated actors, the National Cinderella. Can you believe my luck? Everything that fortune teller had said was beginning to come true. I'll never forget the day we filmed that kiss. Quiet concept, please. I was like a nervous schoolboy, going all over the details in my mind. Do we fake it through camera angles? Do we actually kiss? Marker. I was nervous about kissing Fatin in front of a whole film crew, especially since I had a crush on her. <laughs> Who didn't? But then... Action! It felt as though the whole world stopped when our lips met. Cut! News of the kiss spread across Egyptian media before the film was even released, with headlines accusing Sharif of defiling a national treasure. After the film came out, the two co-stars avoided one another to stave off rumors of even more impropriety between them. You see, Fatin Hamama was not only a national treasure, she was also a married woman. The Blazing Sun. That was the beginning of it all for me as an actor, and for me and Fatin as a couple. I really had no intention of making a fool of Fatin's husband. He was the film director, Iz Zulfikar. I had a lot of respect for the guy. It was complicated. But... Our love for each other just felt inevitable, like fate. Fadin spoke to Ease, frankly, and told him how we felt about one another. He conceded their relationship graciously. As for the fact that I was Catholic and she was Muslim, that wasn't an issue for me. I let religion ruin my life once, but never again. I told Fadin I would convert. One of the best things about converting to Islam was I got to choose a new name for myself, a new identity. It was perfect timing, too. Our movie was just coming out. I would effectively be introduced to society as a new man. I went with Omar Sharif. Sharif means noble in Arabic. Plus, it sounded like the name of an experienced man of the world. Though Sharif was set on marrying Hamama, the thought of telling his father he was converting religions for a woman was daunting. So Sharif told his mother, who told his father, who took it so badly he went into diabetic shock. Three days later, Sharif and Hamama were married in a private ceremony at her home. 
Together, Sharif and her mama made five films, one of which her ex-husband had directed. After The Blazing Sun, I was an actor in demand. I starred in up to four movies a year. I loved being an actor, but one thing I could never get used to was the endless hours of waiting around on set. That's how I got into gambling. One day, I was bored on set and came across a book on how to play bridge. I couldn't put it down. I loved solving puzzles, and I became obsessed. I was damn good, too. Before long, I was playing with some of the world's top players. For no trump, fellas. These tricks are all mine. Sharif would win big playing bridge, and he'd lose just as much. His growing gambling habit led him to prioritize high-paying roles over choosing films for their artistic integrity. That's how he came to agree to star in a French-Tunisian film called Goha in 1958. I wasn't terribly interested in the part. I even turned them down at first. But then I found out how much it was going to pay. And frankly, I couldn't afford to say no. Gambling wasn't the only challenge facing Sharif. He'd soon have to learn how to juggle stardom with fatherhood. I was in Tunisia on set when I received a telegram. Congratulations. Stop. It's a boy. We named him Tariq. A boy. I never imagined I'd be so proud to have a son. But at the same time, I couldn't have felt farther away, both physically and emotionally. A father? Me. By the time Tariq was born, Sharif had starred in 16 Egyptian films, now widely considered to be classics. And just round the corner was an opportunity that would take his career to new heights. Columbia Pictures put out a casting call looking for someone to play a role opposite a burgeoning British actor named Peter O'Toole. The movie's director, David Lean, was searching for someone to play the captivating Arab leader, Sharif Ali. Omar Sharif's headshot was randomly thrown into the mix. David Lean practically cast him on looks alone, saying Sharif's dark coloring was the perfect foil for Peter O'Toole's pale skin and bright blue eyes. With the film's cast now complete, production began on Lawrence of Arabia. I traveled to the deserts in Jordan to meet the rest of the cast. When I say desert, I mean deep desert. The nearest road to set was at least two hours away. The heat was intense, but it was the most majestic place I'd ever been to. Sand dunes the color of clay, thousands of stars filled the dark night sky. And the set, it was huge. There were thousands of extras, from Brits to Bedouins, and caravans of horses and camels. David Lean, Peter O'Toole, and Omar Sharif became close over the years it took to film the epic. The bond between Peter and me was one of the greatest things to come out of the film. Peter gave me the nickname Cairo Fred on account of how good my English was. 
At the end of every month, the three of them would go to Beirut for 48 hours to blow off steam. And while Sharif went gallivanting in Beirut, her mama was managing her film career while also caring for their son. We went 28 days without bathtubs or women, so naturally they were the first things we tracked down in our free time. I only looked. I never touched, I, I promise. The women, I, I mean, not the bathtubs. <laughs> I was still a married man. Lawrence of Arabia would go on to receive 10 Oscar nominations in 1963, including a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Omar Sharif, who up until now was totally unknown in America. It was rare for a Middle Eastern actor to make his way to mainstream Hollywood, and Sharif kicked off his entrance with a narrowly avoided disaster. It was our first night in Hollywood, and Peter wanted to show me a night out on the town. We passed this little theater where the comedian Lenny Bruce was doing a set. The man was a riot. You know that Joe Lewis was a hell of a fight. <laughs> we got ourselves backstage to meet him, had a few drinks. Then a few drinks more. The bars were closing, but I wanted to keep drinking, so we headed to Lenny's place. My memory is a little foggy from there. All I know is that one minute we're listening to records... <laughs> No, I'm not kidding. And the next, yes. a bunch of cops burst into the place and arrested all three of us. Officers! Officers! Calm down. Don't arrest me. We found ourselves behind bars in the wee hours of the morning. They allowed us one phone call each. I rang the film's producer, Sam Spiegel. Hello? Uh, sorry to wake you, Sam, but... You see, we've, we've had a bit, bit of a situation. So Sam shows up at the police station an hour later with a bunch of lawyers. Peter and I are told we could go. But Peter refused, saying he wouldn't leave without Lenny, <laughs> even though he was the reason we were behind bars. So Spiegel sprung all three of us. <laughs> I don't even want to guess how much he paid. As the fortune teller once predicted, the 60s would see Omar Sharif rise from an Egyptian screen hero to an international cinematic star. It's April 8th, 1963. The red carpet is rolled out at the 35th Academy Awards ceremony in Santa Monica, California. The evening's host is Frank Sinatra. Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif we're up against legendary Hollywood stars like Gregory Peck, Patty Duke, Betty Davis, and Catherine Hepburn. I almost didn't get to be there at all. The movie's producers said they didn't want me to come to Hollywood. They told me not to bother, that there wasn't any point in me coming. But Peter stood up for me and told those bastards that if I didn't go, he wouldn't go. Lawrence of Arabia won seven Oscars that night, making it the evening's big winner. Though Sharif didn't win the Oscar, he did go on to win a Golden Globe. The film's success had officially launched his career in Hollywood. He landed his next big role as the lead in the romantic drama Dr. Zhivago, directed by his old pal, David Lee. 
being Dr. Zhivago was the most thrilling and the most challenging role for me. It was an epic part with an epic director, and David had even told me that some of his dedicated maniacs from Lawrence of Arabia would be working on this film too. I was excited to reunite with the old gang. The best part of filming was that my boy Tariq got to play me. Well, a young Dr. Zhivago. He was just about seven years old. My heart burst with pride seeing him on set. I wasn't expecting to enjoy having him with me as much as I did. Unfortunately, Sharif's role as the romantic lead in his own life had long been falling apart. He and Fatin had grown estranged over the years. She remained in Egypt while he travelled back and forth from filming in the US. My marriage to Fatin was winding down. We were good friends still, best friends even, but as far as a romantic relationship went, that had faded a long time ago. In the end, our split was amicable. She demanded a dignified divorce, and I wanted to move on. Perhaps it was fortuitous that Cherise's newfound bachelorhood would come at the same time that the U.S. was experiencing a massive cultural revolution. It was the 60s. Classic cinema was in its golden age. Hollywood was a dreamland filled with beautiful and talented people. And there was Sharif at the center of it all. But back home in Cairo, things weren't going so great for Sharif's family. My father's business never recovered after King Farouk was overthrown. I guess you could say I was feeling nostalgic after my divorce from Fatin. I felt a longing for family, for roots. So after I finished with Javago, I helped my parents move to Spain to be closer to my half-sister, who'd married a Spaniard. And Baba even reopened his timber business there, and it actually did okay. Being in Javago left its mark on me in many ways. It wasn't just a film. It signified the tying up of loose ends where my own family was concerned. Zhivago was also where I learned a valuable lesson about the nature of celebrity. Too big a success can be dangerous for a star. It defines him and it limits him. I felt like no matter what I did from there on out, I would always be Dr. Zhivago. Despite a long list of credits in Western cinema, Sharif's legacy was ultimately tied to just three roles. Sheriff Ali in Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and as the gambling con artist, Nicky Arnstein, in the musical comedy Funny Girl. But as time went on, Sharif's real passion forced him to use his day job as a means to an end. I liked taking risks. I loved the thrill of competition. But gambling was beginning to really hurt me. I lost nearly one million dollars in one night of betting. I couldn't afford to turn down roles. I had to recoup my losses. Despite having had great success, Sharif would once again find himself realizing the fortune teller's prophecy. I had grown accustomed to a certain way of life. I couldn't tell Fatin that I didn't have enough money to send the kids to boarding school in Switzerland, so I took on a few film roles to bank some cash. But I needed even more money. 
I bought racehorses and formed a competitive bridge team. I named us the Omar Sharif Bridge Circus. I became one of the top players in the world. And then, my past caught up to my present. I was at the Olympic Bridge Games in New York when I got the feeling you get when someone is watching you. I look up, and who do I see? Yane, my first love. She had become a championship bridge player too. <laughs> Imagine where life would have taken us if we'd stayed together. But seeing Yane was a brutal realization that I didn't feel at home in Hollywood. I had come to be accepted, but I never felt settled. Sharif did his best to live a politics-free life, but that didn't stop politics from meddling in his. In 1967, Egypt lost the Six-Day War against Israel. While all this turmoil took place back home, in the U.S., Sharif was cast to play the role of Nicky Arnstein, a debonair inveterate gambler in a musical comedy called Funny Girl. Talk about art imitating life. Sharif would be starring opposite a Jewish-American actress who was a vocal supporter of the State of Israel, Barbara Streisand. And high-ranking officials in Egypt had something to say about that. The studio called to tell me someone had leaked a photo of Barbara and I rehearsing our love scene. The story ran in a New York paper, and copies made their way back to Cairo. What do you mean they want to revoke my citizenship? What for? It's just a movie, for heaven's sake! Suddenly, I found myself in the eye of an Egyptian media storm. I was being called a traitor. It was all such nonsense. On set, political tensions were high, but so were romantic ones. Sharif and Streisand would go on to have an affair throughout the filming of the movie. My co-star was beautiful. They asked me to love her for weeks, for months. And I'm supposed to change my feelings when I get back into my street clothes at the end of the day. <laughs> well, I couldn't always do that. Funny Girl marked Sharif's third big Hollywood success, and one of his last. By now, it was the 70s, and Sharif ushered in the new decade with a series of major flops. It also didn't help that the entire film scene was changing. These new American directors wanted to tell American stories. Suddenly, there were no parts for someone who looked and sounded like me. There may be some truth to that. A spate of new Hollywood directors and up-and-coming talents were emerging on the Hollywood scene. And perhaps they saw Sharif as a relic from Hollywood's golden age. Then again, this may be just another case of Sharif pointing the finger of blame at anyone and everyone but himself. Given the chance, he'd have probably gone back and asked the fortune teller for a refund. By the mid-70s, it was time for me to split, leave America. The stock market was plunging and my finances along with it. Bartender, another double. By the time I said goodbye to Hollywood, I had played every kind of foreigner imaginable. I played a Nazi officer, 
a Russian doctor, an Austrian prince, Mexican villain, an Italian lawyer, even the Latin revolutionary Shea. I felt as foreign in Hollywood as the characters I played. So I left. This is the final call for flight 974 to Paris. Now boarding at gate 16. Ah, that's my flight. Sharif relocated to Paris, and steadily his acting career devolved into a series of small cameo appearances. As Sharif got on in years, his age and his 50-cigarette-a-day smoking habit resulted in a range of serious health issues. But he continued to make headlines for other reasons. In today's news, international actor Omar Sharif making headlines for a series of violent outbursts in Greece. Those media people were leeches. They followed me around everywhere. They wrote that I smashed up a restaurant in Greece. And so what? All I wanted was an order of calamari with a side of no autographs, please. And then there was the Paris incident. The news made me out to be some crotchety 70-something-year-old man that was losing his mind. I had every right to be pissed off. That roulette game was rigged. The real story is that Sharif had become enraged while on his way to losing nearly $30,000 on a high-stakes roulette game in Paris. When he started arguing with the casino attendant, the police were called. Sharif then headbutted the officer. In 2007, Sharif punched a parking valet over a currency dispute. He pleaded no contest to charges of misdemeanor battery and was ordered to take an anger management course. From Paris to Beverly Hills and all around the world, similar headlines of Sharif's bad temper and his penchant for punching out anyone who upset him became common. I was old enough. I'd earned the right to do as I pleased. I could die at any moment. I wanted to go out swinging. Sharif experienced a brief career comeback in 2003 after starring in a French film called Monsieur Ibrahim, a role that earned him a César, the French equivalent of an Oscar, and one of his best reviews in decades. Towards the end of his life, Sharif resettled back in Cairo. Then, on July the 10th, 2015, at the age of 83, Omar Sharif died of a heart attack. It was later revealed that he was also suffering from Alzheimer's. His obituary instantly hit the international press, each paper telling a similar but slightly different version of his story. But here are some details the papers didn't tell you. I stayed best friends with Fatin until my last day. It turns out she was the one true love of my life. I spent much of my time towards the end living vicariously through my son, Tarek. He's my greatest pride and joy. As for me, I never defined success by how much money I made. I lost so much of it in the end, it never mattered. But if you press me to define success, I guess I'd say my biggest inspiration was the real Lawrence of Arabia. The man who was to bridge the gap between the two worlds that I hold dear. 
Just like Lawrence, the British officer who decided to become an Arab among the Arabs, I wanted to be a star among stars. Omar Sharif left behind a catalogue of more than a hundred film and television credits. Today, he's remembered as a trailblazing performer and one of the few Middle Eastern actors to make a name for themselves, both in their native country and in mainstream Hollywood. His obituaries roundly acknowledged the ornery old man that Sharif had become in his old age. But ultimately, to fans round the world, whether in Cairo, Paris or Los Angeles, Omar Sharif would be remembered as the debonair, gap-toothed Egyptian Prince of Hollywood. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast, produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is director Chris Kelly, series producers Lauren Berkowitz and Michael Tanko Grant. Co-producer, Jody Camilleri. Executive producers, Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Lima Alizé. Story editing by Michael Tanko-Grand. Omar Sharif is played by Raj Paul. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Additional editing by Max Collins. Sound engineered and recorded by Vaudeville Sound. Associate producer, Nessa Arif. Research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Joy Lee. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Hala Sudani is Al Jazeera's senior copy editor. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer of podcasts. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events old interviews, and in some cases new conversations with people close to the subject.